1: But first, we start with TELUS Health and its controversial Life Plus program now being reviewed by the province. I've got Sonia Lockyer standing by. She is the vice president of TELUS Health. First, have a listen to this report now from global news reporter Kamal Karimali.
2: Mark Winston's uh, family Mark doctor Winston left Winston to go to TELUS America. Health, a private fee based medical provider. He offered to keep Winston as a patient, but for a price.
3: If we wanted to continue, Um, having him as our doctor, we'd have to enroll in their Life Plus system.
2: TELUS Health's Life Plus program claims to provide preventative care, but for the first year, it would cost $4,600 and $3,600 per year after that.
1: Okay, this program now under review by the province. Here's BC Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, outlining some of his concerns about this. Have a listen.
0: It's critical, I think,
1: that medically necessary services go without user fees okay is that what they're doing though is that what telus health is doing are they selling medically necessary uh procedures for a user fee well, let's find out let's talk to Sonia Locke here now vice president of telus health and i'm very pleased to welcome her to the show Sonia, thank you very much for coming on today
4: hey mike thanks for having me really appreciate you taking the time
1: Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot for coming on. I've told the listeners in the past, a a few weeks ago, I used TELUS Health myself for the first time. I I couldn't get into see uh, the normal walk-in clinic that I normally go to because they've restricted their hours. So I did use the TELUS Health system to renew a prescription, and it it went fine. I I was very happy with the service. I I wasn't charged a fee. Can you uh, briefly describe to the listeners, like, what is TELUS Health? How does it work?
4: For sure, and that's that's a great start is context on what Telus health is up to in the ecosystem, and I think some of the information that's out there is just picking on, I would say a very small component of what what Telus uh, does as an employer funded um, service, et cetera. so so let me right. start by talking about Telus Health overall. So really, we've been in healthcare for fifteen years, which a lot right. of people aren't talking about. so we're here, we're here to help Canada uh, address one of what we would call um, the largest social challenge that we've had of our time, including how do we, how do we this this healthcare system that we're all quite proud of? How do we improve it? How do we make right. sure that people have access to care when they need it? And so, the service that you used was the telehealth MyCare service, which is a virtual service that we launched prior to the pandemic, but uh, really sort of became a service of choice during the pandemic for folks who could not get in to see a, a family doctor for a basic medically necessary service, and there's no fees associated with that service at all. Right. So that's part of what TELUS does. TELUS also uses our technology to enable the healthcare system at large. So uh, we provide electronic medical records to physicians, pharmacy management solutions to pharmacists. We work with provincial governments across the country to create uh, personal health records. So if you think about Alberta or Manitoba or Saskatchewan, TELUS uses its technology to enable that backbone of healthcare. And really, our goal is to complement the system, to pick it up, to to be there beside it, and really put more and more onus on employer-funded health care services so that employers start to step up, especially in the preventative health and wellness space, which is where right. we focus the Life Plus program,
1: does, and keep
4: does, people healthy and out of the system, quite frankly. Does,
1: does tell us Health, though, take some doctors out of the out of the regular mainstream system that people are familiar with and... Sort of gobble up some of those resources. Let me play a clip here for you to illustrate this. So mm-hmm. this is Doctor Kevin McLeod, uh, who works at Lionsgate Hospital. He's a frequent guest on this show, and I talked to him a couple of weeks ago about Telus Health, and he had some concerns about it. So let me play one of the his concerns here about a human resources challenge, and get your thoughts. So Doctor Kevin McLeod here. Because um, some people say, "Hey, we need a competing private option." I can see that side of it. The problem is we have such a human
5: resource problem. That, you know, as you take somebody out of the system and put them in a private system, well, the the patients left are seeing sort of fewer docs or getting spread between fewer docs.
1: Is that a legit uh, complaint? Because if a doctor starts working for TELUS Health, does that mean that people who aren't using TELUS Health have more trouble getting a doctor?
4: So it's absolutely not a legitimate complaint. So what I will say is the Life Plus program has 29 physicians so if 29 physicians is going to you know, create that that much of a challenge, then I think that's, that speaks to a broader uh, system challenge, which we know we don't train enough physicians in BC to meet the demand of the current population. So I would say that's one component of it. The other component of it is that any physician that's working within the Life Plus program also has what I would call a public uh, practice associated with them, or most of them do, I should say. So they're not working in preventative health and wellness full time. Right. Uh, they they are enabled to, to practice outside of TELUS Health and in the my care space, so the the service that you would have used, all of our physicians are part-time and many of them are actually sitting in their clinics and, and when a patient doesn't show up, they'll hop on and do a virtual visit with another one, for example. Right. So really we're maximizing this physician capacity. So really to bring it back to you know, twenty-nine physicians, very small life plus program, uh, doing and focusing on preventative health and wellness but also enabling our doctors to provide medically necessary services if if they so choose to um, through their, their practice mix, right? Every physician okay. can say, I'm going to work in the EMR or the ER one day, primary care another day or preventative health. So it's a mixed practice, and most physicians prefer that because it gives okay. them a bit more of a breathing or breathing space in their practice.
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that Life Plus program, and this is the controversial piece that's being reviewed by the province here now to see whether this is breaking the, the Medicare rules. So it's $4,650 for the first year, and then $3,600 annually after every year after that when you register. What do you get for that money?
4: So, so you get what we would call a multidisciplinary team approach to overall health and wellness. So that includes the, uh, an annual comprehensive health assessment, which is why the, the first year is more expensive. So you're coming in, you're meeting with nurses, you're meeting with dietitians, you're meeting with kinesiologists, you're meeting with mental, mental health counselors, and you're spending real time exploring all, as, uh, all aspects of your health and well-being. And so when you walk into a Thomas Care Center, into the Life Plus program, you're, you're going to see your doctor at the end of a very long day. Right. To review everything that that team has done with you, to review the full aspect of your health care, to review your challenges, your goals. People come in with fitness goals, they come in with exercise goals, weight loss goals, uh, you know, reducing how much they drink, for example. Um, and so, so it's really that team based care approach that people are paying for. To keep them healthy and set real goals for themselves.
1: And how does, and so how is that, how is that not like a two tier medical system, like paying if you can afford that kind of money that you're getting enhanced care? How is that, how is that not breaking the rules?
4: So if you think about how people pay for healthcare, right? So if, if I went tomorrow and, and purchased a physiotherapist appointment, and I then charge my employer benefit package for it, or my pharmacy, for example. So again, if I had an employer who's going to pay for that benefit or not. So, so this aspect of people being able to use either their employer benefits plan or pay out of pocket for wraparound medically uninsured services, that's yeah. not just within Intellis Healthcare Centers, that's everywhere. Okay. That's, how, that's how the system works today. So what we've done is we packaged these medically uninsured services and we put them in one place for convenience of people who may want to take their health care to a different level but this is not about treating illness it's about being proactive it's about health optimization and and that's everywhere that's not just within our life plus program
1: so so therefore you would say that you know the program is under review now by the province you're saying you're not breaking any rules this is not two-tier medicine
4: so this program uh, has been reviewed on two separate occasions by the Medical Services Committee before Telus uh, sort of acquired it through our Medisys acquisition, yep. and each time it comes back crystal clean. So I'm okay. If, if something has changed, then something has changed in how the review process is, is being conducted or the rules of engagement, for example. But I can tell you that when we look at how we set up this program, how it was set up historically, and and you know have met with the Medical Services. Commission. Previously, yeah. it's, it's been very clear, like we set up the program to charge for medically uninsured services, not right. medically insured services.
1: Okay, thank you for coming on to talk about it today. Very grateful to you for that.
4: No problem. Happy to
1: chat anytime, Mike. And here we go now with the inflation rate in Canada soaring again 7.7 percent, the annualized inflation rate in the month of May. That shocking number just out from Statistics Canada, the highest inflation rate in nearly 40 years, higher than projected by analysts. Okay, how should the federal government respond to this now? Can the government fix it? Did the government actually cause it with runaway spending? And how about the Bank of Canada? We expect the bank now to jack up interest rates again. What will that do to the economy? Let's discuss now with my guest, Jean-Francois Perrault, senior economist at Scotiabank. They have a brand new report out on this. Mr. Perrault, thanks for coming on today. It's a pleasure. Thanks Thanks for having me on. You bet. Thank you. What What does that number mean to you? Seven point seven percent inflation rate in the month of May. When you hear that number today, what goes through your mind?
6: Well, certainly a number that if you'd said that uh, a year ago, everybody thought you would uh, you were crazy to forecast that amount of inflation. So it's uh, listen. There's no question. This This is a huge problem. There's, there's zero doubt about it. We're like the bank Canada targets two percent. We're seven point seven. Like this is. This is, uh, you know, if you had inflation control on your job performance, uh, job uh, description, and and this result uh, came about, you'd you'd be worried about what your boss would say
1: about you. So you don't think the Bank of Canada is managing this well? Well,
6: it's a difficult, I mean, it's a bit of a challenge, because a lot of the inflation that we're dealing with here is the same inflation that uh, other countries are dealing with. So there's not necessarily a whole lot of it that's kind of Canada specific. It's you know it's commodity prices, it's war in Ukraine, it's the strength of the observed last year, it's supply challenges. So a lot of a lot of the, the, the momentum that we're seeing is stuff that at the margin we can influence um, but really we're kind of price takers. Like what do we get, what's what's uh, what's Bank Canada or the government of Canada going to do about global oil prices? very little but oh, that matters a right. lot for inflation it matters a lot for gasoline
1: right okay so they'll likely to jack up interest rates again do you think that's the right thing to do like what kind of impact could oh, that yeah. have on
6: yeah yeah i mean there's no there's no question interest rates need to go up a lot more yeah, uh, okay. there's, you know they're 1.5 right now the bank a policy rate we think they go to three by the end of the year and that was before the kind of the upsides of the price of inflation uh today we might be increasing that a little bit further but you know, in the next, the next meeting, for instance, which is in, which is in uh, a few weeks, like they're almost certainly going to raise interest rates by 75 basis points, which is, uh, you know, a very, very, very rapid pace of increase. Typically, central banks, move, unless they're at a crisis, move interest rates up and down by 25 basis points at a time. When they're doing more than that, either on the upside or the downside, it's because they, you know, there's an urgency to, to the decision. Yeah. Um, and so, so a 75 basis point move is clearly it's clearly in order um and it's of course a function of the fact that inflation is just so far out of anybody's comfort zone
1: right so when the, that inflation rate or when that interest rate goes up is it inevitably will i, I agree with you there so that's going to be some nasty tasting medicine but i guess it has mm-hmm. it has to be done right like what kind of impact could that have though on the economy and business
3: I mean, the good news
1: is the economy
6: is still very, very strong, all right? So the forecast for this year, and that includes, so our forecast this year, that includes our kind of a bank header rate that goes to 3% by the end of the year. is for growth of almost 4%. And, you know, that's that's like, that's double the pace that we saw pre-pandemic. That's a very high rate of growth. In fact, the strongest in, in the industrialized countries. So there's a, you know, there's a fair amount of momentum there, which is part of the problem uh, in the sense that that momentum is, is going to be adding to inflation pressure. So the fact that Bank of Canada is going to raise interest rates, they're doing that to try and bring, slow that growth down to some extent uh, to reduce inflationary pressure. So yeah, for sure, rates are going up. It's going to have a dampening impact on growth. But even that at this point in time, based on everything that we're seeing, it does suggest that we're still looking at a pretty strong 2022.
1: Okay, speaking to Jean-Francois Perrault, senior economist at Scotiabank, uh, Scotiabank released a report uh, recently on the government's management of inflation. I want to get your thoughts on that. Let me play a clip here for you from Federal Finance Minister Christia Freeland. And she was asked this week about the report that you released, uh, whether is the government, has the government been spending too much? Is this free spending government, has that driven inflation? And she actually says, you'll hear her say in this clip, well, actually, they they feel they've been very fiscally responsible. Here's what she had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Christy Freeland.
0: Our budget, which I tabled in April, was a very fiscally responsible budget. In fact, the rate of fiscal consolidation in Canada, the speed at which our deficits and debt are coming down is tied for first place in the G7.
1: Okay, are you buying that from the finance minister here, that they've been fiscally responsible? So there's a, there's a little bit of nuance that's
6: required there. So um, I'm not worried about the fiscal situation.
1: I think I think we're
6: on a decent path. So, you know, debts and deficits are coming down rapidly. So she's right to say that. So the question is, not in my mind, you know, is fiscal policy... You know sustainable at current levels on the current path, the question is more, given what we know about inflation now, should the government be doing more to slow things down? and our and our view is, yeah, we should be we should be we should be cutting spending to some extent to help the bank of Canada fight inflation because I, we do think the bank of Canada needs a little bit of help here.
1: Okay, so you think the government's been spending too much money? Is that correct? We do, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah.
6: that uh, the, the, the the expenditure profile is contributing to inflation. There's no question about it. No question. And but again, that's true that's true in the US as well, it's true in Europe, it's true in, in a lot of a lot of advanced countries.
1: Right. So when we hear like, you know, Christian Freeland and others in the federal government will often say, well, hang on a sec, you know, our government is not causing inflation here. Take a look around the world. I mean, this is a global phenomenon. There's inflation everywhere. But you're saying that what that's being caused by excessive government spending in those other countries, too. Is that right?
6: Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a collective problem. I think governments around the world have been spending too much. And that, and that is the underlying source of inflation. You know, if you think about it, like last last couple of years there have been trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of government spending thrown at the global economy. Obviously, not yeah. the pandemic and manage that and, and you know, like this is a game time decision and you can expose it. price you know, it's clear that we did a little bit too much at the time you didn't know, but whatever, we are where we are. And and those trillions of dollars are part of the reason the global economy has roared back to the extent that it has. And they're underlying the reason which you've, you've seen this increase in commodity prices, you've seen the supply challenges, the bottlenecks, because demand has been juiced by incredibly large amounts of uh, fiscal stimulus being thrown right. at almost every
1: big country in the world. Right. Speaking of Jean so Francois
6: we, so, per- so we have, So we have a part, of, we're like, we're partly responsible for that. I mean, we are one of the big countries of the world.
1: Yeah. My guest is Jean Francois Perrault, economist at Scotiabank. Christian Freeland. The federal finance minister gave a keynote speech the other day where she outlined the government's inflation plan. And a lot of the headlines were, well, it's going to be more spending. She, she talked about $8.9 billion worth of spending to help Canadians through, through inflation. Now I'm going to play another clip here for you, get your thoughts. She was asked about that and she said, well, actually what that was was that was spending that was announced in earlier budgets. And we're actually kind of tightening our belt here going forward. So. Here's what she had to say about government spending going forward and the government's inflation plan. Then I'll get your thoughts, Christy Freeland.
0: In talking about the affordability plan of our government, I chose to stay with the affordability measures that were already in the budget from April and in last year's budget rather than bringing new measures online.
1: Okay, so she's saying that a lot of the spending going forward was stuff that was previously announced and they're sticking with the plan. Mm-hmm. you know are you are you does that does that make sense to you like I guess she's trying to paint this as like, well, we're going to start yeah. bringing the deficit down the, you know as a as a share of the economy are you buying that, or do you think the spending going forward is still excessive
6: well so so put it this way um it's true the measures that you talked about are things that have been announced in the past, and some of them are coming into effect this year and and so that means. You know, it's kind of fortuitously timed, right? Cost of living is increasing for Canadians, and some families are getting a fair amount of additional support this year because of these, 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 uh, these policies. The challenge is, uh, and this, this is where it's really difficult for politicians, is, you know, governments want to do something. They want to help people out when, you know, household budgets are strained. Like, it's, it's completely normal. So the response, like the, the natural thing to do is say, well, let's give folks a little bit of money to help out. You know, let's give them a check. Come back, for instance, gave gave everybody five hundred dollars. Try and help manage the the higher cost of living. Yeah. The challenge in doing that is by giving people more money in an environment where you actually have to have people spend less to control inflation. You know, probably makes inflation control more difficult. Yeah. So the right the right policy thing to do is to pull money out of the system, but the right political thing to do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pushing people to do the opposite. Now, she's indicated she hasn't done anything new with that in that respect, and that's true. Um, but that money is still coming into this economy now. It's going to help certain households. It's going to make it's going to make inflation control a little bit more difficult for, for a range of others, though.
1: Right. Let me ask you about lastly about the, the role of the Bank of Canada. We touched briefly on interest rates expected to rise here. I've sp- interviewed uh, Pierre Poilievre a few times here on the show running for the Conservative Party leadership and as everyone knows he's been extremely critical of the Bank of Canada. He says there's been too much quantitative easing or, or printing printing money as he puts it. He says he would actually fire the the president uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada. Um let me play another clip here for you from Christian Freeland talking talking about that and the role of the Bank of Canada. Get your thoughts, Christian Freeland here.
0: It is chiefly the central bank, the Bank of Canada, which has the job of bringing inflation down. We recognize that, and our government certainly respects the central role and in the independence of the Bank of Canada.
1: Do you agree with her assessment there that this is the central bank's job to control inflation and that that should remain independent? Do you Your thoughts?
6: So, 100%, the Bank of Canada needs to remain independent, um, you know, because the reality is the Bank of Canada makes difficult decisions. Like when it's trying to bring inflation down, it's raising interest rates. It's making life more difficult for Canadians. So if you throw politics in that, it it you know it 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 possibly changes how they they approach uh, the policy making process. But I think the key the key point to consider here is like it is like it's the Bank Canada's job, to target inflation at two percent. That's like that's their mandate. And in right. fact, late last year, the government and the Bank of Canada renewed their agreement that uh, the Bank of Canada would focus on. It's policies aren't achieving 2% inflation. But that agreement is a joint agreement between the government and the Bank of Canada. So there's a joint responsibility there. Now, in normal times, when inflation is a little bit below or a little bit above their target, like, you know, the Bank of Canada can do it pretty easily. Um, but when you're in these periods where inflation is so far out of line with anything that anybody thinks is reasonable, you've got to, you've got to say, okay, well, sure, it's the Bank of Canada's job normally, but these are normal times. And in our mind, this is this is the kind of environment where you say, yeah, we respect make hand as They're doing their job. We're going to try and help and bring down inflation with them because, like, we understand the nature of the problem we're dealing with.
1: Right. By cutting spending is what you want the government to yeah, do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. OK. Yeah. Well, how about how about cutting taxes? Should they do that? How about cutting gas taxes? Well, kind of gas taxes helps, obviously. Okay.
6: Um, it reduces the price of gasoline, which is, which is great. And gasoline goes directly into the measures of inflation, so that would reduce inflation. Um, it leaves liberal money in people's pockets, which, um, you know, have got good and bad in, in the inflation control world. But that's only one element of the broad range of things that are pushing inflation up. So, yeah, I mean, it helps. It, it would have some right. impact, but it's, that's not the solution. That can't be the only solution.
1: Okay, it's been great to have you on here. Thank you for your thoughts and your analysis today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Okay. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs
5: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing
6: care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: All right, welcome back. Here we go now with Vancouver's smallest condo. It could be yours. It's up for sale right now, 358 square feet. It has no kitchen no laundry, but in that neighborhood, it's certainly below the market value for a lot of condos going in Vancouver. Still pretty pricey, though. Would you buy it? $659,000 for this particular unit. Let's discuss it now with the realtor who is uh, has the listing on this property, Norm Juraski. Norm, thanks a lot for coming on today.
5: Well, thanks for having me.
1: Okay, this is really interesting property that's getting a lot of attention here. Teeny, tiny condo here. So let's talk about this, normal. like, Where is this located? This condo
5: is located in a building at 567 Hornby Street. And that's a about, built about 1995, 13 stories, 130 strata lots. And one of the tenants in the building that uses about 90 of these suites is the hotel. So that's La Soleil Hotel. That's yeah. essentially one owner, and then there's a few dozen suites that are individually owned that people use for airbnb some of them keep them empty, apparently for friends and family and uh, and then there's suites like this one where like there's a tenant in it currently it's six months paying twenty eight hundred a month
1: twenty eight hundred a month, so if someone bought it for six hundred and fifty nine thousand would that would that rent cover your mortgage? Well, it depends what their down payment was
5: and how big their mortgage was, okay? yeah. Yeah. Um but just on the price, I mean the market's turned. I'm having a conversation with the seller to reduce the price. It's uh-huh. no secret we know what's happened in the last, you know, 2 months versus the kind of January, February, March was super busy. And I've told them I said to be honest this it should be in the high fives. But mm.
1: when you, you
5: know, look at property in downtown it's it's 1500 plus dollars a square foot and this is small. It's not for everybody. Right right yeah. so let's
1: let's talk about this I've taken a look at your your listing online Norman. and I'm looking at the photos of it and it it looks like it looks like a, a very nice comfortable hotel room like it's basically it's basically a room in a hotel building but it, but it's not part of the hotel right but it's that's basically what it is it's like a hotel room right yes, essentially when they were yeah.
5: built um it was and so the zoning is 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 hotel zoning, but this fellow had the uh, the owner had this, um, the use amended, and so now a rancho management company, there is a strata manager, and you know, when they sent out the the meeting minutes, etc., it basically says, you know, residential slash hotel owners. So, this is no kitchen, but it has a bar fridge, a hot plate, a kettle. Uh, The tenant's in there now, during the showings I've had, you know, it's comfortable, um, but the, the person that's living there is probably not a family. It's a couple or an individual who needs to work downtown or wants to live down there and have access to everything. And it's some of the priciest real estate in the city is right that area down on, on oh, Hornby. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. It's Hornby Street. Yeah, that's a high-rent neighborhood there for for sure. Like, if you were going to buy a typical condo in downtown Vancouver, I mean... How much are you looking for for a nor- for a usual condo? Over a million, right? Well, if you've got you know used
5: is used resale, you know ten years old, give or take. I mean, it ranges, but let's just say average twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a foot. Some of the new uh, condos are two thousand dollars a square foot plus. So, if you want a thousand feet, that's anywhere from one 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 to two to two million dollars.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Like for a condo over a million bucks. So here is a condo, 659,000. You're talking maybe, maybe the price could be, could be lowered. Like what would it be like to live in there though? I mean, you're talking this teeny tiny place. There's, there's no kitchen. You say you got a hot plate. What would you, would you be allowed to cook your bacon and eggs in there? Wouldn't the neighbors complain? <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is no range hood. I'm not sure people are cooking bacon and eggs down there, but I'll give you a quick example. Yeah. I know another uh, unit this, the seller owns, and he had a tenant in there for a year, and he was an engineer that uh, went back and forth between the Philippines and did business in Vancouver. It's perfect for him. You know, a place yeah. to stay, have a cup of coffee, and, you know, a, you know, a bar fridge. You can have some, some keep your beverages cold um but you know there's a there's a restaurant on the ground floor that takes up three of the strata lots and within blocks you've got everything that you need so it's pretty easy to go for a coffee shop or whatever it, so again yeah. it's not for a you know and you take your laundry out and get it done that's easy enough to do and your dry cleaning
1: yeah speaking to real estate agent Norm Jaroski about Vancouver's smallest condo 358 square feet no kitchen uh, listed for 659000 You mentioned that there's also no laundry in there, Norm. So I guess what, you'd have to, I guess, do a lot of dry cleaning or go down to the laundromat?
5: Well, I'm not sure there's a laundromat close by, but, you know, uh. I know people that just take their laundry in in a bag and they're dry cleaning. And the, the, uh, the dry cleaner will do the whole shoot and match. I mean, it's a little extra cost, but uh, again, you're, you know, a lot of people that would live down there would not have a car. If this engineer that was there didn't have a car. He didn't need it. When he had to get somewhere, he just took transit. Yeah. So his business was mostly located downtown.
1: Could you rent it out? Like, let's say someone bought it for the 659 Could you then just like Airbnb it or rent it out or sublet it? Is that allowed?
5: Yes. Uh, there right. is some dispute with the, uh, the, <laughs> the fellow that runs the hotel, um, but I've had a two-week research when I listed the property. I spoke to BC Assessment, Rancho Management, and the City of Vancouver. So zoning runs with the land, but, uh, you know, Rancho Management has no, no uh, direction that there cannot be rentals, Airbnb, or anything, and this yeah. is zoned hotel. So, yeah, the other owners in there that I know, some of them, they're making about 70000 a year gross income doing Airbnb or VRBO. Huh. Yeah, so okay. you're looking at 300 nights at, you know, 250 bucks a night kind of thing.
1: Are you getting much interest in the property? Is your phone ringing off the hook here with people who want to look at it? No, it's, it's not ringing off the <laughs> hook. Our realtors are, are,
5: you know, I've had some showings, but again, I think the price is a you know, and I'm not trying to, to, you know, other than just saying the market's changed, uh, the seller yeah. knows that I know it. He's a pretty sophisticated real estate guy. Um, you know, you try for a price and see what happens. But I think realistically, it needs to be in the in, in the high fives. That's what we're kind of shooting for for a, for a new list price.
1: Right. And for pe- yeah. for people for people who dump, do come and take a look at it, Norm, what are what is the typical reaction when people see this? Like, okay, this is what I'm going to get for my 659k, a little teeny tiny condo. Like, mm-hmm. are people are people kind of shocked at that, or are they kind of like no. what kind of reaction What kind of reaction are you getting to the listening? I guess.
5: Well, they first of all they understand that uh, that is located. If you can look it up, it's in the Golden Triangle in Vancouver, which is a, again maybe the highest real estate prices in the city. Secondly, yeah. the location is unbelievable. You walk out your front door and you're, you're a couple blocks to to uh, you know the Water Canada Place, a couple blocks almost to anything downtown. Location is fabulous. It faces west, so you have a ninth floor view over Burrard Street and no other buildings. It's quite bright, and they they like it. You know, it's just a matter yeah. of pricing. And actually, a couple of investors have looked at it, too, who, Ooh. you know, can, still are renting. They've moved here from, you know, come back to Vancouver after education abroad. And then they I um, think, yeah, this might be a good investment.
1: Hey, Norm, what is your read on this market right now? Like you were mentioning that it looks like you might maybe you'll bring the price down in this particular unit. Do you see... With the rising interest rates right now, and sl- sales appear to be slowing down in in homes in Metro, do you think the prices are going to start coming down across the board here? I think the market's
5: taking a breather. Let's call it that. It's going to coast for a little bit, and prices have come down a little. I just wrote an offer with a lady in Poco, Quotland, Citadel Heights, and con- or townhouses there were selling January, February, March, April, you know, fifty to one hundred thousand dollars over asking. We put an offer in a property that's been listed two weeks, listed eight ninety nine and we got it for eight fifty. So mm-hmm. there was no other offers on it. There was no manic ten offers. Yeah. We had time to look at it, look at a couple other units and come back to that one. So with the rates now five year money is about fixed is just five point zero nine, where two years ago it was, you know, two point four nine. Yeah. So I think the top's gonna come off the market is what I think. And from super high to still quite high, but I don't think it's going to be a crash. I think it's a slight correction, maybe, in the works.
1: Norm, good luck with the listing, and thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Okay, Mike, thanks a lot. All right, here we go now with Canada's inflation rate soaring again, 7.7%, the annualized inflation rate in the month of May. That shocking number just out from Statistics Canada. It is a 40-year high, higher than projected by analysts, and everything is going up. Groceries, rent, and especially gasoline. Yeah, of course gas is going up. Gas prices are up. 48% year over year. Let's discuss now with my guest, Laura Lau, Chief Investment Officer with Brompton Funds. And I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Laura. Thanks for coming on.
2: Great to be here, Mike.
1: Okay, Laura, first of all, tell me what goes through your mind when you see that number, 7.7% inflation. What do you think of that number?
2: Well, I think that uh, inflation will stay higher for longer because if you actually look at the components of inflation, it's across the board. It's not just gas. It's food. It's housing. Everything has gone up in price. So, and and with that, expectations go up. People, you know, um, people will negotiate with uh, unions. Are going to want more money. So we're going to get uh, higher expectation of expected um, inflation means people want to get more paid more. So that feeds into the cycle. And the other thing is you talked about energy prices up. Well, that feeds through the whole economy and with a delay. So there's more of that to come. Uh, So, for instance, you have the railways they will add fuel surcharges because they're paying more. So it takes time for that to work through the system. Uh, So, as I said, inflation will be higher for longer than any of us would like.
1: Okay, let's talk a little bit about those gasoline prices, Laura. You briefly touched on there. So 48% increase in the price of gas year over year. What is driving that in your mind?
2: So a number of things. Uh, Carbon taxes increased in Canada. Uh, And the other thing is if the price of gas goes up, well, the GST, you know, HST also goes up. But the big thing is oil prices have gone up globally. They were already starting to go up before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine because the oil market has been very tight uh, and it got worse after that. Uh, And there is a shortage, gasoline, uh, jet fuel, there's shortages all around. And one thing people don't realize is with COVID, it's been very tough on refiners. So a lot of them actually So the refineries have been shut down because of COVID, and they haven't reopened.
1: Let's talk about the sort of domino effect you mentioned there with higher gas prices. So when gas prices are up, you mentioned it increases transportation costs for things like groceries, durable goods across the country, transportation in in all facets goes up. How else does this affect the overall economy? It's like... You know, is price of gasoline like one of the key bottom line drivers of the cost of pretty much everything else?
2: Yes, I do find it funny when uh, the government doesn't use um, uh, energy and food costs in their inflation number. It's like, but we all have to live, we all have to go somewhere. So when you have to pay more for uh, fuel, it becomes a tax because you can't spend it on other things uh... So if you say maybe want to go out for dinner, you're like, well, I don't have as much discretionary income, so you don't. So that's yeah. you know what it feeds through that people don't buy that extra latte, or they instead of buying you know a brand, they buy a no name brand. So people tend to trade down or buy less.
1: Speaking to Laura Lau from Brompton Funds about the inflation rate, seven point seven percent. Gas prices are way way up. What do you anticipate will be the reaction from central banks and governments to this inflation number? We're going to see interest rates go up again, correct?
2: Yes, we were, we were already expecting interest rates to go up. They went up 75 basis points in the U.S., and now it looks like they could go up 75 basis points in Canada. And with that, certainly the price of interest goes up, so it'll be tougher on the housing market.
1: Right. Do you think that's the right thing to do? Or do you think that there should be some effort to bring down those gasoline prices as one of the key drivers of inflation? Do you think government should be somehow trying to reduce the cost of fuel rather than tinkering with so, the interest rates? Or maybe they should do both?
2: So there's a few things you can do. Uh, what we've done in you know Ontario is that the government has actually reduced some of the fuel taxes. And I know there's some right. talk of doing that in uh bc as well like uh, like vancouver you get a city tax victoria you get a city tax which most places around canada you don't have uh so and i know uh freeman yesterday was talking about she doesn't want to decrease um the taxes either so we may not get any relief from the federal government on that front uh the other thing is there's a reason oil prices are so high we are actually in I would call an energy-constrained world. Uh, whether it be coal, gas, there's not enough energy. So I think what the central banks are doing is they're almost trying to engineer... They're engineering a slowdown to try to bring some of the commodity right. prices down. And there is higher risk of a recession happening because of that. Uh, so they are very concerned about inflation now. And unfortunately... For you and I recession will bring um, prices down it will fix inflation, but is the medicine going to hurt it will it will
1: do you think that government should be more aggressive on these gas prices maybe cutting gas taxes you mentioned that there have been some actions by individual provinces notably you mentioned Ontario also Alberta cut gas taxes. There is pressure here to do the same thing in British Columbia, but we have a BC government that so far is resistant to cutting gas taxes. I heard Chrystia Freeland, the federal finance minister, bragging just the other day that she had increased the carbon tax in Canada despite inflation. She you know, she wasn't worried about inflation, she's going to crank up that carbon tax anyway.
2: And we've seen that they're very com- comfortable increasing the carbon taxes. Certainly, the federal government and I think the BC government does want to decarbonize, and higher um, gasoline prices will speed that along. However, uh, between you and I, are we even able to get an electric vehicle? We can't. It's mm-hmm. lineups. We can't even. So that's part of the problem. Even if we want to decarbonize, we actually can't.
1: No. Yeah, it's tough to find an electric vehicle these days for sure. What about this? the fundamental sort of structural issues with gas prices here in Canada, is, is there a way to improve that? Can we start refining more fuel here in Canada? Can we, should we build more pipelines?
2: The number one thing I would say is that to build pipelines. So I know Vancouver did not really like um, pipelines to be built, uh, but Alberta has the capability to produce a lot more oil. But the problem is they can't get it to market without pipelines. Or you ship it through uh, trains, which is much more dangerous. We saw it, we've saw, we seen explosions. So I think pipelines are the safest way. And one thing people don't realize is 75% of the energy um, in the world is still carbon based. It's still fossil fuels. So it's hard to get that to zero. I'd say about 10, 20 years ago it was 90% So we're getting there. But we're not ready. We're not ready to go to zero. Yeah. So in the meantime, what do we do? Uh, we still need oil. So if we, can get pipe, if we could get more pipelines, oil prices would not be this hot.
1: Final question for you, Laura. You mentioned the R word there earlier about a potential recession. Do you have your seatbelt on for that? Or do you think that's what's coming, a recession is coming? Do you think it's inevitable at this point?
2: I think we definitely have a slowdown. And how long and deep the recession is will depend on uh, central banks, how much they jack up the interest rates. Right now, it seems like they're really keen on fighting inflation. Uh, so that's why I do believe at this point we could have a recession. I would say that Canada is blessed in the sense that you know we have everything Russia has. We have gas. We have uh, We have fertilizers. We have food. We have oil. So I'd say that uh, Canada is in a better position than almost every other country in the world. Uh, But if the U.S. sneezes, we catch a cold. And it does feel like the U.S. consumer is very concerned about high inflation, high prices now. So they're starting to spend less.
1: Thank you for coming on with your analysis today. I appreciate it. We've talked so much about inflation and interest rates on the show today. It's time for a little happier news. I think it's a happy story. It's pretty cool to me. The pair of nesting bald eagles on Gabriola Island who have now adopted a baby red-tailed hawk in their nest. So this is super cool. There is a camera, 24-7 camera that's set up monitoring these eagles And it caught the moment when one of the eagles returned to the nest with a baby red-tailed hawk in its claws, presumably for food. And turns out instead of eating the little baby hawk, they have now started to raise the hawk as their own. Okay, it's very unusual. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dr. David Byrd from McGill University in Montreal. He is one of Canada's leading ornithologists, recipient of the D- Doris H. Spears Award, Outstanding Lifetime Contribution to Canadian Ornithology, past president of the Society of Canadian Ornithologists, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thanks for coming on today.
3: Well, thank you, and thank you for all those those kind accolades.
1: Oh, I I, I, I love talking to you, and it's awesome to have you here again. So oh, let me well, ask you, you about this: a, a ball, nesting bald eagles adopting a baby red-tailed hawk. How unusual yes. is that?
3: Uh, it's extremely rare, and I'll tell you why. Because first of all, the, the idea that bald eagles would raid a red-tailed hawk's nest is not a necessarily a rare occurrence. If there's a pair of red tails in the area or any other nesting bird of prey or even ravens or, or whatever, if the bald eagles know their nest is there, they are definitely going to take young from it to feed their own young. What makes this so unusual, though, is that that little guy survived the flight from his nest to the bald eagle's nest without being crushed by the, the toes and the sharp talons of that bald eagle. I've trained these things on my fist, bald eagles, and I know how powerful their feet are. And so on the video, you can actually see the little guy being unceremoniously dropped into the nest and then yeah. miraculously bouncing up on his two feet. And what saved his life, I know it for a fact, is that he started begging for food right away, right away. <laughs> and that, that, that basically created this kind of a, a switch in the eagle's mind of crushing it to feed its baby eagle um, versus feeding it as a, sort of a, a new newborn eaglet. And they did the latter, obviously. And it's, uh, there's been a case down in California about a year ago, and, of course, there's the famous case in Sydney in 2017 that I was monitoring along with David Hancock of the uh, Hancock Wildlife Foundation. And, um, and so uh, it's just, it it is an amazing thing and it's a, it is a real feel good story. And um, what, what's really um, uh, added some, uh, some interest to this whole thing and some drama is the fact that there has been a spate of mysterious deaths among bald Eagle chicks going on right now. I'm not the best guy to talk to about this would be David Hancock, but, Um, We don't know what's causing it. We thought avian flu, but uh, not necessarily. So anyway, I think people should focus on this little hawk and uh, the feel-good story going on in Gabriola Island.
1: Oh, for sure. I love it, too. And and do you think this is a case where the parenting instincts of these these adult eagles kicked in here and sort of overruled their instinct to to eat this little hawk?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is it's all about hormones, really. It's hormones that are driving the... uh, the urge to, to feed, and, and, you know, birds of prey are no different than a lot of other birds. I mean, I've seen uh, pictures in ornithology textbooks of, of cardinals, uh, those little red cardinals, feeding goldfish that were, like, uh, begging out of a pond because they were doing the begging response, and so the cardinal had lost its own young and was actually feeding these koi fish because they were begging to it. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that birds are necessarily stupid. It just means that they're really driven strongly by hormones, yeah. and that's exactly what happened with this little guy.
1: And in this case, bald eagles and red-tailed hawks—they're traditional enemies, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. um, it, it, I mean, uh, probably the the odd adult
3: red-tailed hawk um, uh, caught unawares would be na- nailed by a bald eagle. They'll—they'll they'll take anything from fish and carrion and even people's do- small dogs and cats. Um, yeah. You—they've been reported in nests as well, so they're, they'll take just about anything. And a red red-tailed hawk caught unaware would be a, but but a, one that is aware would not be likely likely game for a bald eagle but the chicks in the nest absolutely yes
1: so what do you think is going to happen now with this little this little guy this little baby red-tailed hawk that's suddenly been adopted by these nesting eagles do you think that that you think the eagles will raise this this hawk now as its own and it will it will well, fly fly away from the nest and live a normal life
3: yeah it's only got about a a week to two weeks at most before it leaves the nest. And then it'll spend uh, about a week um, in the, a week or two in the area hanging around the parents. And that's when the trickiest time is for any bird leaving a nest is the first uh, week or two out of the nest because they, they've got to learn how to find food for themselves. And, of course, uh, these bald eagles are likely uh, living on Gabriola Island, likely eating a diet of seafood, and red-tailed hawks are not necessarily seafood eaters. I imagine they might eat the odd dead fish along a beach, but it's just not the place where they hang out. And so this little guy is going to have to find a way to, you know, to get his own food. And and, um, in the Sydney nest, what uh, my friend David Hancock did, the Hancock Wiley Foundation, is he actually put a kid's swimming pool out there below the nest when he saw that the red tail wasn't necessarily eating seafood and put in some mammalian uh, food items in there and the bird was eating those. So um, there may be some intervention. There may not be if the bird, uh, but I suspect this little guy, he looks really healthy. It's going to do very well, and people can go and watch this with their very eyes, as you said, on that Growls webcam. It's amazing to be able to see this drama. It's great.
1: Yeah, no, it really is cool because they've got this 24-7 camera set up, and you can go online and and watch this sort of drama unfolding, uh, which is amazing. Do you think that this little red-tailed hawk, like you mentioned, that it would normally not eat the same food that bald eagles would eat, and if the parents are bringing back Fish or seafood to the nest, or whatever could this red tailed hawk maybe start adapting and maybe changing its normal uh, behavior start acting like an eagle
3: uh, probably not likely i mean it'll it 'll right. readily eat the food uh, the fish you know the seafood stuff brought into the nest because birds of prey uh, and red tailed hawks are great carrion eaters, just like uh, bald eagles they 'll eat a lot of dead stuff and so on, whatever they find but um, the, i don 't think it 's going to make this red tailed hawk' They'll become. Uh, like a, a pseudo bald eagle and start um, yeah. hunting for you know trying to catch fish because they're not adapted for it the bald eagles yeah. have adaptations for catching fish and things like that along the seashores but right. um, red-tailed hawks probably not so um, but I, there's so many people caring about this bird that um, I, I think that uh, uh, I think it'll it'll do just fine and uh, I also would like to do a quick shout out to Pam McCartney of Growls uh Gabriola Island, who brought this to my attention because she deserves all the credit for noticing that this yeah. this white bundle that went into the nest, they've called the the little guy Malala, uh, which means survivor. Someone told me that it's the name of uh, a woman that was um, uh, dealt with badly over in the Middle East somewhere, maybe Afghanistan or something. And uh, okay. someone pointed that out to me, but I, I don't know for sure.
1: Okay, well, I love this story. Everyone's hoping for the best for this little red-tailed hawk. David, thank sure. you very much for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you.